Teacher, do you not care if we perish? When you hear those utterances from the first disciples, does it ring any bells? Has it been said in one respect or other, maybe even in this last year? The last time you know, we read this passage was, Mar- uh, was March 25th of last year. Just when we were at the, the very beginning of this, um, of this pandemic. And I, I suppose that's the uh, effect you know, troubled times can have on us. To ask this kind of question. Time will always seem to slow down, I think, when our weakness... Our weaknesses and vulnerabilities are unveiled. Though it was only a little over a year ago, it probably feels like five years ago. Now, in retrospect to this past year, I think also most people might measure our recent misfortunes as mere hardships in comparison to some of the more calamitous stories we've been told of history. You know, that all things considered, you know, while... The past year has indeed been a time for trials. It probably pales in comparison to the dark days that even our grandparents and great-grandparents have faced and experienced in their own time. I imagine the disciples who were on the Sea of Galilee likewise considered this squall, you know, on the, uh, this particular squall to be... Um, somewhat incomparable to the storms that the disciples later experienced on the Mediterranean, especially maybe those who were with St. Paul as the church is progressively branching out. Although regardless of how we may appraise the challenges of these past 15 months, it's safe to say that we, like the first disciples, were left exposed. But these past months have been, had an exposing effect. We had a taste of our own fragility. The fragility of humanity in 2020. And not just in the global context, but I'd say especially amongst the collective Christian community. I think it's moments like these that provide rich perspective perspective about, you know, maybe even some of the prayers that we've been taught and why we've been taught to say them. Consider the Lord's Prayer and the final words where we say, lead us not into temptation or lead us not into trial, as some of the translations say. The influence of our natural survival instincts as human beings explains the need for such words. That fear of perishing, like the disciples, you know, may cause us to pray like this. But even more than that, I imagine there is a greater fear still, a fear of being exposed as unworthy or rather untrusting followers of Jesus. Any crisis has the ability to unmask our true sincerities, our actual inclinations or or our certainties, false or true, whatever it may be, all these things become apparent. Greater than the fear of being buried beneath the waves is rather the fear of what the storm may stir from the bottom and bring back to the surface. 
Maybe this is one of the reasons why God allows us to face these kinds of trials. Yet he's always present in the midst of it. As Jesus was you know, asleep, but surely present with the, with the disciples. We wouldn't call our Savior the great physician if he hadn't the skill to uncover the ailments that his patients are inclined to conceal or hope to forget about. It's one of his gifts. The skill to unveil. When I was considering this and praying about it, I couldn't... It made me think of the uh, skill that was exhibited in Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional fictional, uh, uh, stories. In fact, today's gospel runs... If, you know, if our Lord meant to uh, cause this little squall, make it a ruse to kind of wake up his disciples to their, their, uh, their sincere selves, to expose it, then you know, I, I think it runs uh, amazingly close to one, one of the first, actually I think it's the first episode uh, that uh, uh, Doyle writes of uh, one of the, the small stories of Sherlock Holmes called A Scandal in Bohemia. I don't know if any of you have read this. Um, I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you go after this. But it's one of my favorite uh, stories, very vivid. I remember it being told very, an early, very early in my childhood. And in summary, there's a masked gentleman who comes to Holmes' uh, residence, the classic uh, 221B Baker Street, and reveals himself to be the Grand Duke of Kasselfeldstein in, uh, in, uh, to be... Uh, uh, and there he's also the heir expected to be the next monarch of Bohemia. And he confesses to having a, a, a secret relationship with one Irene Adler, a, an antagonist who frequently emerges in these stories. Well, as, uh, as uh, the Archduke is uh, arranged to marry a Scandinavian princess and uh, prepare to take power, you know, he, he worries about this past relationship you know, leaking and, you know, scandal, of course, uh, being exposed. And so he hires Holmes to do the proverbial cleanup. And he says to him that, you know, there is, a, there is one potential uh, danger that he fears. There's a, a picture that, uh, a photograph that was taken of both him and Irene, Sadler, or Irene Adler uh, together. And she has it in her possession somewhere. And given her blackmailing character, you know, you know, she, he suspects that she's going to take advantage of it, so Holmes agrees to, to the assignment. He, he goes and pursues, uh, investigates, and long story short, you know, he, he finds out uh, where she, she's hiding this photograph when uh, she, I guess he goes and he, he questions her. Um, I'm really making this short, but like he, he goes and he questions her, and, you know, I, I think he disguises himself to be somebody else, and um, his uh, partner, uh, uh, Dr. Watson, he has, uh, has simulated uh, a fire. He breaks open a smoke bomb and, and ha- starts calling out fire, fire. And in that moment, Irene, and while everyone else is rushing for the exits, Irene rushes to her hiding place and uh, recovers the photograph. And Holmes is watching the entire time. And uh, though the Though the story doesn't end with uh, Holmes actually getting getting the photograph, like it's it's kind of a it's a remarkable remarkable story, you know, where crisis you know emerges, 
we find out where our true affections lie, where our true cares can be. And in the same sense, you know, these are, it's a tough lesson that the disciples have to go through. When our Lord asks the question, where is your faith? I've always wondered what he means by that. Does he mean like, where has your faith been? Or where is it now? How does this change things? I suppose it would be the latter question that we should all rest with in the coming days and in the coming years after what we've experienced this past year. Where does it stand now? Where have our old affections or our old assumptions, our old certainties kind of left us? What good have they done this past year? And how does that compare to the faith that we owe our Savior? How does it compare? Have we taken this time to notice that our Savior is always with us, though He seems somewhat silent, like Jesus sleeping, though He's present, He's sleeping on the cushion? Do we realize that He will see us through, no matter what? It's a good question. In a way, you could say that even before the gift of baptism is given to the church, this squall of sorts, which is forcing one wave after another into the boat, has a kind of preliminary baptizing effect. The nature of the sacrament of baptism will always continue to make us vulnerable to the Savior. And the Lord will not stop short at allowing some crisis or other to continue to expose our vulnerabilities to Him, that His healing, His influence may grow. Let's remember that when we face uh, ongoing challenges, as we prepare for them. Lord, we pray for your consolation. But when we enter this next moment of consolation, prepare us for our next moment of desolation. That is the work of the storms that our Savior gives us. Let's remember these lessons and ask our patroness to guide us as we progress on the journey of faith. Thanks be to God.